Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. The Peter Schiff Show. We had a very volatile day today in the markets. Pretty much everything got slammed, particularly early in the day. I want to start off by talking about the stock markets. But before I do, I want to give a special shout out to Raycon Wireless Earbuds for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Raycon earbuds start at about half the price of other premium wireless earbuds on the market. And for a limited time, listeners to this podcast can get 15% off at buyraycon.com slash gold. Now, the Dow Jones, I think on the lows, was down just over 940 points, paired its losses into the close down just 509 points, But I think the chart is starting to look weak now for the Dow if you take a look at it. You know, all the major indexes were down today. S&P 500 uh, down about one, just over 1%. The exception being the NASDAQ, which clawed its way almost back to unchanged. It was barely down just 14 points on the day. The weakest of the indexes was the Russell 2000. That index was down just over 3.3%. In fact, if you look at the chart of the Russell, I think that is the weakest of the charts. And remember, the Russell 2000 is the one index that didn't even make a new high. In fact, the high for the Russell was set back in 2018. And that was just before we had that major sell-off in the fourth quarter of 2018 that resulted in the Fed reversing course on interest rates, going from hiking rates to cutting rates. It's what laid the foundation for the reversal of from quantitative tightening back to quantitative easing. Of course, most of that happened in 2019, but all that began before anybody had ever heard the word COVID-19. Yes, once we got COVID, then all those policies were dramatically expanded, but it all began 
with the sell-off that we had in the fourth quarter of 2018. And that is when the Russell 2000 made its high. And of course, that is the index that is most sensitive to the U.S. economy, right? The domestic economy. That is the one that everybody was most bullish on because that's where Trump's policies were supposed to have their greatest impact. And that's where you see uh, the most weakness uh, in any of the major markets. In fact, if you look at the low points today, the Dow Jones was down about eight and a half percent from the peak that we set earlier this month, that record uh, high, the S&P down almost exactly 10% from its record high earlier this month. NASDAQ down about 13% at today's low. Uh, The Russell actually down the least uh, from its high, just over 8%. But again, it didn't have as big a rally. So the fact that it fell pretty much almost the same as the Dow, but didn't rally as much as the Dow, it really underscores the weakness that underlies that market. Now, there's a lot of reasons that were uh, attributed to the decline today in the market. Now, one of them, I think, was the resurgence of some COVID-19 cases in the UK. And that really kind of shined a light on the idea that the reopening of the world's economy may not Uh, come off as planned. Maybe some of these businesses that have reopened are going to reshut. So I think there was some more uh, gloom and doom on the economic outlook, which is probably why the stocks that are economically sensitive to what's happening in the real economy were among the biggest losers. In fact, the stocks that people were buying again, some of the stocks that were positive today were the COVID stocks, the stay at home, work from home, Uh, stocks, many of these stocks were actually positive again today. Now, I think what was happening too is you probably had some traders who were shorting some of those work-from-home high-flying bubble stocks and buying some of the reopening stocks looking to balance out that long-short portfolio. And I think they were unwinding some of those positions as a lot of the uh, bloom was coming off the economic rows of this, of this recovery. Now, you also had stocks that were up like Oracle made a new uh, high today on the news that it's teaming up with Walmart. Walmart was also up today bucking the trend. Uh, they are now going to be forming a joint venture, uh, TikTok Global, to own the U.S. Uh, business that ByteDance owns. Uh, so that was supposedly good news for these stocks. Again, who knows? It seems like the White House is giving uh, the go-ahead to this deal, but you never really know because you don't know where Trump stands for sure because he keeps tweeting out all sorts of stuff on this deal. Personally, I hate everything about the precedent that we're setting where you can have uh, a president coercing a company into a shotgun marriage with another company and kind of making this happen and, and putting so many conditions on what will be approved and what won't be approved. I think this is going to hurt our standing uh, globally, but it also you know, gives new powers uh, to the, the government, which at some point will also be used against us in a, in a negative way. And of course, nobody does anything about stopping this. So I think that is one of the reasons that you had this weakness. But also, I think you had the report that came out from Europe. This was a leaked report. Uh, FinCEN, 
uh, reported that between 1999 and 2017, uh, the major banks reported, you know, over $2 trillion of transactions that they had to file SARS, which are suspicious activity reports related to potential money laundering. And I think uh, the sheer dollar volume of these reports that were filed during that time span scared investors. And a lot of these European banks got hammered hard. And then when the U.S. markets opened, the U.S. banks uh, fell in addition to that. And and personally, I, I don't think this is a big deal. Uh, I think the banks are overpriced. I've been negative on these banks for a long time. And maybe that report coming out was a catalyst to inspire a new wave of selling. But in and of itself, I think it's a meaningless number. I mean, people maybe look at this number and they think, oh, my God, there's all this money laundering going on at these banks. Look, none of this is likely actual money laundering. These are reports that the banks are filing because something about a particular transaction raised some type of regulatory red flag that may indicate the potential for money laundering. Not that there's actually any money laundering going on, just that maybe there's a higher probability that there might be than there would be had this red flag not been raised. But all of these red flags are basically waving for nothing. These are false flags. I mean, these rules and regulations with respect to anti-money laundering that have been put on the banks are so onerous and the penalties are so severe. If you don't report something that looks suspicious, then banks err on over-reporting. So there is an abundance of SARs that are filed. The vast majority of the transactions are completely innocent, right? There's no money laundering at all that's going on. So just because all these SARS were filed over this, you know, 18-year period, doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean that there was anything bad actually going on at any of these banks. It just means that they had to file all these BS uh, reports to appease the regulators and to cover their own asses on the slim chance that maybe Uh, one of these transactions actually was money laundering, although it doesn't actually have to be money laundering. You get in trouble if you fail to report a transaction that is suspicious for being money laundering, even if it turns out there is no money laundering at all. So the key is not that there is money laundering, but did you report a situation where it might have been money laundering, even if it turns out there was no money laundering at all? So the, the, the banks can't uh, build a defense by saying, hey, there's nothing bad going on. The government doesn't care about that. What they care about is, did you alert us to the fact that maybe something bad was going on? So all kinds of SARS are filed by all kinds of banks. It's all a waste of time. It's all a waste of money. This is one of the reasons why you have so few uh, small banks that can even be in existence anymore because they cannot afford to pay the cost of this mountain of compliance that is now necessary. And of course, all of this started as a result of the United States, the Patriot Act. We're the ones that really got the ball rolling. And then we kind of forced the rest of the world 
to adopt all this because we were basically the gatekeepers. Uh, and if other countries didn't do what we were doing, we were going to, you know, deny them access to the uh, U.S. dollar. And, and so we kind of beat up everybody into doing this. But what the politicians told us after 9-11 is they tried to say that, you know, the reason that we had this 9-11 terrorist attack was because the terrorists had access to the banking system. And if they didn't have access to the banking system, then maybe they wouldn't have been able to fund the terrorist activity. So what we need to do is Americans need to surrender all of their constitutional rights to privacy and give all this new power to the U.S. government to protect us. Because according to the government, according to the Bush administration, the reason that we had the September 11th attacks is because we had too much constitutional freedom. Americans had too much privacy. And it was our rights to privacy that put us in jeopardy. That's why it was so dangerous, because it made it so easy for the terrorists to bomb us because we had these rights for privacy. And so we had to make a deal with the government where we give up all those rights in exchange for the government protecting us from terrorists, right? That's the bill of goods that the American public was sold. And so we gave up our constitutional rights without a fight because the government promised to to keep us safe. Of course, the biggest threat uh, to America is not from the terrorists, it's from the U.S. government. And now the U.S. government uses this new gain power uh, to, to uh, increase its grip over the American public. And all of these transactions, these $2 trillion plus in in suspicious activity, I'm sure none of it relates to terrorism, right? The number of transactions that probably relate to terrorist activity and terrorists in the banking system are minimal, right? Most of the actual money laundering is not done by terrorists, right? It's done by drug dealers, right? That's who's would be laundering money or people that have money from an illegal source. And they're trying to launder it to try to legitimize the source of, of that income, right? But the vast majority of these cases don't even relate to that. They don't relate to the type of money laundering that you normally think of, right? You think of like, you know, Tony Montana, you know, the Al Pacino character in Scarface, who's got, you know, all these suitcases full of cash and he needs to launder the money right through through the banking system. That's not what's going on here. The vast majority of the actual cases of money laundering don't have anything to do with terrorists. They don't have anything to do with drug dealers. It's just tax avoidance. That's all it is. That's the vast majority. That's what it really was all about. It was about the government getting additional power to enforce uh, taxes, especially as the rate of taxation gets higher and higher and higher, more and more people uh, try to avoid those confiscatory levels of taxes. And so the government wants more and more power uh, to be able to prevent people from avoiding those taxes and using the banking system to do it and, and putting the onus on the banks to basically be unpaid tax collectors. You know, the drug dealers, they don't even mind paying taxes. It's not about avoiding taxes. They're totally happy to pay the taxes on all their drug profits. Their problem is how do you pay taxes on the drug profits without letting the government know that you're a drug dealer and that your profits are from an illegal source? Because the minute you file your tax return, right, you know, now you've given the government information that it could use against you. Even if you don't write in under occupation drug dealer, you know, if you just report, you know, millions of dollars of income, you know, 
the government's going to be suspicious on where that income came from, right? So you don't want to raise that flag with the government. So what these drug dealers try to do is they try to use the banking system to try to create a legitimate source of that income so that they can file their tax returns and pay taxes and attribute that income to that legitimate source so that they don't incriminate themselves for being a drug dealer in the process of filing their tax returns. I mean, that's one of the reasons that the whole taxation system is voluntary, because the government can't force you to give you information about yourself that it can then use against you criminally. I mean, that's the Fifth Amendment. That's one of the reasons that the whole system is unconstitutional or why it was voluntary. But of course, if you don't volunteer, well, then they can put you in jail. So it's not really voluntary. It's compulsory. So it violates the Constitution. But again, I don't want to get into that aspect of it because I don't have time for that. In, in the podcast. The point I'm trying to make now is that the drug dealers aren't trying to avoid taxes. They just don't want to get arrested for being drug dealers. And that's real money laundering. But when you think of a guy that's just not reporting some of his income, which is from a legitimate source, right? He didn't earn his money dealing drugs. He earned his money legitimately. He's just trying not to pay taxes on the money. I think that is the vast majority of of the money laundering, but most people don't think of that as money laundering. They think of that as just tax avoidance or tax evasion, not money laundering. But it's all these anti-money laundering regulations that all of these suspicious transactions ultimately end up applying to. So it's not that all these banks you know, have got all these uh, transactions where you have drug dealers and terrorists Uh, No, none of it has to do with that or tiny, tiny fraction of it. It's mostly transactions that look suspicious that maybe the person engaged in the transaction is doing something to avoid paying an income tax obligation in some country. So I think it has nothing to do with why the bank stocks were down. I think there are legitimate reasons why bank stocks are going down. That's why I don't own them. I just think this is more noise. And the fact that the banks were so weak in reaction to a report that basically is much ado about nothing, just shows you uh, that I'm correct in the underlying weakness of these stocks and why I'm avoiding them and why I'm advising other people to avoid them as well. Just a reminder that today's podcast is sponsored by Raycon Earbuds. Raycon is offering 15% off when you buy at buyraycon.com gold. You know, the only problem I have with my earbuds is half the time I want to use them, my seven-year-old son Preston has got them. You know, ever since we first opened them, we did it together and he learned how to use it or he figured it out. Uh, I have a hard time uh, keeping them away from him. My problem is going to be when my four-year-old daughter figures out how to use them. But you know, if a kid can do it, you can do. They're great products. They sound great. They're comfortable to wear. Unlike some of your other wireless options, Raycom earbuds are both stylish and discreet. They've got no dangling wires, no stems to distract anyone during video calls. The company was founded by Ray J. So give it a try. Raycon has a 45-day return-free policy. So if for every reason you're not satisfied with your earbuds, just return them and you'll get your money back. Raycon's newest model is the Everyday E25 earbuds. They're the best ones yet. They've got six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, a more compact design, and a noise-isolating fit. For a limited time, get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com gold. That's buyraycon.com gold. 
for a special 15% discount on Raycon wireless earbuds. Make sure to check it out now while the deal's still running. Buyraycon.com slash gold. But I think the biggest factor behind today's sell-off is exactly what I discussed in my podcast on Friday. And that is the idea that the Federal Reserve is not loose enough. The Fed's monetary policy is not dovish enough in that when uh, the Fed spoke, when Powell spoke last week, even though the Fed indicated that rates would stay at zero until 2024, something like that, something that the Fed had never done before, right? Even after the 2008 financial crisis, the Fed was data dependent, right? We, how long are rates going to stay uh, at zero? Well, I don't know. It depends on the data, right? That's what they were saying. They didn't have any you know, multi-year commitment to just leave them at zero, but that's what the Fed has done now. But despite that, the market said that's not enough because the markets need more. This bubble is so much bigger than the one that we had back then that it requires far more air coming from the Fed uh, to keep it from deflating, right? So we need more. The Fed needs to talk about negative interest rates. The Fed needs to commit to bigger quantitative easing, more quantitative easing. Now, of course, the Fed is promising more QE because Powell is egging on Congress. Powell is saying we need more fiscal stimulus. Well, any additional fiscal stimulus automatically requires more monetary stimulus because where is the government going to get the money for the fiscal stimulus? It's going to get it from the Fed. That's what supposedly makes it a stimulus is that the government is going to run larger deficits. It's going to spend money it doesn't have or it's going to cut taxes so that it no longer has the revenue to cover some of the spending that it's already uh, doing. So it's always the Federal Reserve that has to come in and make it all possible. So the minute you have a Fed chairman goading on uh, Congress saying we need fiscal stimulus, pass fiscal stimulus, that is a commitment to provide whatever additional monetary stimulus is necessary to fund that fiscal stimulus. But I also think what's going on is if we don't get additional fiscal stimulus, and this is maybe what Powell is saying and why the markets are scared, if we don't get the fiscal stimulus, the Fed is not going to just provide additional monetary stimulus on its own, right? Because all that monetary stimulus is going to do, absent the fiscal stimulus, is pump up the asset markets, the stock market, the real estate market, or bond market. It's not going to do anything for the real economy. I think the Fed believes that what will help the real economy is the fiscal stimulus. Now, the Fed is wrong. That's not going to help the real economy either. But that might be what these guys think. And so they're holding back on that additional firepower until Congress actually passes something that the president signs. And one of the reason that uh, this additional fiscal stimulus, and which would necessitate more monetary stimulus, one of the reasons that it's now in jeopardy had to do with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg that happened over the weekend. And so in a way, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death is another factor behind today's sell-off in the stock market. And, you know, despite the recovery at the end of the day, don't let that fool you into thinking that, you know, that's it. 
And just because the S&P was down 10% at its lows, oh, okay, now it's an official correction. The coast is clear. We can buy the market. To me, this sell-off looks like it's real, and it looks like it's going to gain momentum, as I said in the last podcast, until we get something concrete coming from the Fed, which may require something coming from Congress about additional stimulus, which again, doesn't stimulate the economy, but it will stimulate the markets. It will provide the addicts on Wall Street with the drug they need in order to bid stock prices higher. Now, I do believe that even if Congress doesn't act, if the market falls enough, the Fed will act on its own because the Fed will see the weakness in the market as a sign that the economy is going to weaken because it realizes that it's the wealth effect that is powering uh, whatever recovery it thinks is in progress. And so if that is in jeopardy, then I think the Fed will act unilaterally. But of course, as the market starts to tank, that may put additional pressure on Congress uh, to get some kind of a stimulus, especially since Trump already basically uh, sided with the congressional Democrats stabbing the Republicans in the back uh, that were willing to oppose uh, the enormity of the Democratic stimulus. Uh, But now that you have Trump uh, backing the Democrats, you would think that a stimulus was coming, except for the monkey wrench that was just thrown into the system based on the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now, why is this such a big deal? Well, it is going to be a huge political fight because the Democrats want to hold the Republicans to the standard that they held Obama to back in 2016 when he nominated Merritt Garland. And that followed the death of Antonin Scalia. Now, of course, Scalia was a you know Republican-leaning justice, right? And now you had him dying with a Democratic president who would obviously appoint somebody who was, you know, friendly to the Democratic uh, position. And so the Republicans who controlled the Senate at the time clearly didn't want to approve Obama's nomination if in the unlikely event Donald Trump won, which pretty much nobody actually thought was going to happen, but they at least held out some hope that it might happen. They were like, look, you know, we're just going to wait and see the results of this election. And, and then if a Republican wins, well, we'll let the Republican president nominate the replacement for Scalia. And if Hillary Clinton wins, well, OK, well, either we'll do Merritt Garland or, you know, maybe we'll wait for Hillary uh, to appoint somebody. I mean, they might have done Garland uh, just because maybe Hillary would have nominated somebody even worse. But that's what happened. And of course, Trump won. And so he nominated somebody else, which the Republican uh, Senate uh, confirmed. But now you have the Democrats saying, well, wait a minute, you need to do the same thing now. You need to wait until the outcome of this election. You can't let Trump in an election year appoint a Supreme Court nominee and then confirm him before this election. We should wait until the election is over. And if a Democrat wins, if Biden wins, which is very likely, well, then we should allow Biden to nominate somebody in his first term, uh, just like what happened with Obama. Except there's actually a big difference. And I think Ted Cruz did a very good job on ABC News of pointing out the difference. He actually brought up the fact that historically, 
there have been 29 instances where a Supreme Court vacancy has arised during a presidential election year. 29 uh, occasions where this has happened since the birth of the American Republic. And in 19 of those 29 times, the White House and the Senate were held by the same political party. And in 17 of those 19 circumstances, the nomination was made and confirmed during the election year. Now, of the 29 times, there were 10 occasions where the president and the Senate were of different parties. That's what happened with Merrick Garland. And on those 10 occasions, only two of the 10 nominees were confirmed. In all occasions, the presidents made a nomination, right? That is their job. So every president who has had a vacancy during his final year, right, an election year, they have all made nominations. The Democrats are saying that they don't even think Trump should make a nomination at all, which would be a complete break with tradition. I mean, Obama made a nomination. The Senate didn't confirm him, but Obama made the nomination. Uh, So it's ridiculous for the Democrats to claim that Trump shouldn't even nominate. He should just defer that responsibility uh, potentially to uh, his successor. No, he he should make it. It would be totally breaking with tradition uh, for Trump not to make a nomination. But then of the 10 times where this has happened, where you've had the president and the Senate being of different parties, only two of the 10 nominations actually got confirmed. So what happened with Merrick Garland was not some unprecedented maneuver by the Republican Senate. It was basically what had happened in the previous nine times, right? Before that, there were nine occasions where this happened, and only two of nine times uh, the nominee had been approved. And so now it's two out of 10. So I don't think it's a double standard if the Republicans uh, go through with this nomination because they have both parties. And to say that we need to wait for the results of the next election, well, what about the results of the last election? The last election in 2016, the American public elected a Republican president. They also elected a Republican Senate. And a lot of those senators ran on their role in confirming Supreme Court nominees. In fact, one of the election issues uh, that Trump ran on was his ability to appoint a quality justices to serve on a Supreme Court. So that election already happened. The 2016 election is just as important as the 2020 election. And so the will that the voters expressed in 2016 means as much as what will the voters are going to express in 2020. Trump has a four-year term. And if uh, Supreme Court vacancies arise during his term, he has a right uh, to appoint a replacement. And the Senate that's you know in session at the time has a right to have the hearings and has the right to confirm or reject uh, those nominations. They don't have to wait for the outcome of the next election. But anyway, this is becoming a big political hot potato. And now you also have the Democrats threatening the Republicans. Like, if you dare do this, right, if you dare do something that is totally within your rights to do and that is consistent with the precedent uh, throughout history, then we're going to retaliate in a way that is unprecedented, really. They're threatening to stack the Supreme Court, and they're threatening to end the Senate's right to filibuster because the filibuster might prevent the stacking of the court. Although I guess the Republicans, in order for the Senate to get rid of the filibuster, 
wouldn't the Republicans in the Senate be able to filibuster that? So I'm not really sure. But all of this political uh, brinksmanship, I think, is getting people worried that maybe the next several months, Congress is going to be focused on that. In fact, the Democrats have even brought up impeachment again, which a lot of people probably thought was a, a finished issue, especially since the election is so close. Why bother to impeach a president who may not even be in office next year? Uh, but all of this stuff is now taking center stage and maybe new stimulus checks are being pushed off uh, behind stage. And so that is worrying the market because if the Fed has said, we're not giving you any more monetary stimulus until we have some fiscal stimulus to go along with it. And now you have all this stuff going on with the Supreme Court that is now diverting attention away from stimulus to this Supreme Court fight. I think this is a reason that the markets are worried. But I think it's very interesting, too, that these Supreme Court uh, picks are so important. And the only reason that they're so important is because the Supreme Court justices don't really do their job. That's why they're important. I mean, if these guys actually did their job, it wouldn't even matter which president nominates them or what Senate confirms them. I mean, the Supreme Court is supposed to be there as the third branch of government, and it is a check on power, right? It's supposed to make sure that the other two branches of government obey the Constitution. It's like they're like the cops on the beat. And if laws are passed that are not authorized by the Constitution, they're supposed to be struck down, regardless of the political affiliation of the justices, regardless of whether or not the justices think the laws in question are good or bad, whether they have a benign purpose, that's not their job. Their job is to decide whether or not the law is authorized under the Constitution. But that's not what they do. In fact, now they like to talk about that as being a strict constructionist, right? As if not having a strict construction is legitimate when it's not. Laws are not open to interpretation. The facts might be, but not the laws. The laws have to be applied. Right? My father used to always tell me, and I've joked about this before on the podcast, that the, the Constitution is not written in Chinese. It does not have to be interpreted. It just has to be applied. You know, there's also a old a legal principle called void for vagueness, meaning that any law that is open to interpretation is, is, a, is a vague law. And if it's vague, then it's void because laws have to be clear. So you know what conduct is lawful and what conduct is unlawful. If it's ambiguous, if it leaves a lot of doubt, well, then it's a void law because you don't know to follow it. The Constitution is not a list of suggestions. These are laws. Now, of course, it's laws that bind the U.S. government. And I think it's interesting that, you know, none of the laws that apply to the citizens are supposedly open for interpretation. Like we don't have justices or judges to interpret the laws uh, that restrict uh, the conduct of private individuals, right? These are the laws and the laws have to be enforced. But somehow it's only the laws that apply to the government that are open for interpretation. But what they really want is they don't want the laws to be interpreted. They want the laws to be ignored. And the reason that this appointment is so important to the Democrats is their entire agenda is unconstitutional. 
everything the Democrats want to do violates the Constitution. So they don't want justices to enforce the Constitution because they're going to strike down their laws. They want justices who ignore the Constitution. They want justices that share their political ideology so that they will allow any unconstitutional law they pass to stand because it advances that ideology, that agenda. That's why they loved Ruth Bader Ginsburg, because she believed all this nonsense, right? She was a liberal. She thought all these laws were good, and therefore she wanted them to be constitutional. But that's not a good justice. A good justice is supposed to set aside what they think is good or bad and just apply the law. And even if there's a program or you know a law that they think is, is good, they need to say, you know what? It's not authorized by the Constitution. So if you want this law, the first thing you have to do is amend the Constitution. You know, there's a process for amending the Constitution and the government has done it, right? When the government wanted to tax income and they didn't want to apportion it, they had to amend the Constitution in order to have an income tax that was no longer regulated uh, by the apportionment provisions of the Constitution, right? Think about the the uh, prohibition, the 18th Amendment, right? The government wanted to ban alcohol throughout the United States, right? You had the temperance movement, became very popular, and they wanted to make it illegal uh, to manufacture, distribute uh, alcoholic beverages in the United States. They didn't just pass a law. They had to amend the Constitution. They, they had the 18th Amendment. Now, why did they do that? Why didn't they just say it's illegal to, you know, to, to drink and, and, and to make and distribute alcohol? Because back in 1919, which is when the 18th Amendment was ratified, there was respect for the Constitution. I mean, the American public would have known that that law was unconstitutional if they just tried to pass it, right? And of course, Congress knew enough not to even pass it because they knew it was unconstitutional. The president wouldn't have signed it knowing it was unconstitutional. Everybody understood that the Constitution limited the power of the government. And so in order for the government to do something that was not expressly authorized by the Constitution, they had to amend it. And then after they amended it, they passed a new law pursuant to that amendment. Now, eventually that amendment was repealed in 1933, but why they even bother doing that? Because as far as everybody is concerned today, there's nothing that stops the U.S. government, if they wanted to, from uh, passing a law, making it illegal to distribute or consume alcohol. I mean, what would stop them? I mean, nothing. Because we do the same thing with marijuana. The U.S. government says it's illegal uh, to sell marijuana or use marijuana. Well, how is that different than alcohol or, you know, cocaine or heroin, any of these drugs? There's nothing in the Constitution that gives the government the authority to prohibit any of this. So if the government wanted to make it illegal, right, to use or produce or distribute uh, narcotics, they would have to amend the Constitution just the way they amended the Constitution uh, to uh, prohibit alcohol. So why aren't they doing that? Right? I mean, the Constitution didn't change. It's the same Constitution now that we had back then. What changed is the attitude. What changed is this anything-goes attitude that was personified by Ruth Bader Ginsburg that the Constitution doesn't really mean anything. It's a living, breathing document 
open to interpretation. And as long as you think the law is good, if you like the law, well, then it's constitutional. It's only the laws that you don't like that are unconstitutional. And so that's why the left is so upset that Trump may appoint a justice that actually cares about the Constitution. They may actually strike down an unconstitutional law that might be passed uh, during the, uh, the Biden term. And I said before, I think the best thing that Trump has accomplished relative to what would have happened had Hillary been president is his Supreme Court nominations, because they are far more likely to strike down unconstitutional laws than would have been the justices that would have been appointed by Hillary Clinton, who would have obviously ignored the Constitution in order to allow the left-wing socialist agenda uh, to continue to advance. But, you know, if you go back to the Robert Bork hearings, remember Bork was nominated by um, Ronald Reagan. It's really unfortunate that he never made it to the Supreme Court. I think he's probably the best Supreme Court nomination of my lifetime. Uh, And it's too bad he didn't make it. But of course, he had to backtrack on, on quite a bit of what he had written, even in the hearings, to be considered, because he understood the Constitution. And he knew that just about everything that the government was doing at the time was unconstitutional. Uh, But what Bork said, and I think is basically the way the so-called strict constructionists look at it today, and they present themselves today, is he said that if he was on the Supreme Court, he would not vote to strike down all of the unconstitutional stuff that the government was already doing, that it would be very disruptive to now declare unconstitutional programs, you know, laws that had been in effect for a long time. And, you know, so he was going to kind of look the other way on those, which I disagreed with. I mean, I would have said, you know what, just because something is illegal, if you've been doing it for a long time, it doesn't mean that now you can get away with it, right? It's like, you know, if somebody's been, uh, you know, stealing for years and years and years and, you know, has gotten away with it. And now all of a sudden you catch them. It's like, oh, well, you've been stealing for so long. I guess we're going to let you continue to do it because, you know, you've you've made a career out of it. We don't want to disrupt your career. You know, you've done it so well for so long. So we'll just look the other way. You can keep on doing it. No. You know, once you actually determine that they've been getting away with a crime, it's put a stop to it. OK, you did it in the past, but you're not doing it in the future. So I really would like to see uh, rolling back uh, these unconstitutional laws. But what Bork said, though, was that in the future, if Congress wants to impose something new, a brand new law that it hasn't been doing in the past, that may have been allowed with Supreme Court justices that didn't understand or enforce the Constitution, then he would draw the line. So if the government had some new program, some new law that violated the Constitution, that he would have no problem striking down because it was something new and it wouldn't be very disruptive. It would just disrupt the political movement for this new program. And I think that is the same mentality that a lot of these other justices actually have. They're not going to go back and eliminate all these unconstitutional laws that we've been living with. But if the Democrats come up with some new socialized medicine, Green New Deal, right, all kind of crazy stuff that has never been done before, that's also unconstitutional. If you have some decent Supreme Court justices in place at the time, they will strike those laws down. And so that's what the Democrats don't want. 
That's what the Republicans do want. That may be the last remaining firewall that stands between America and complete socialism. The left-wing agenda, even if the Democrats take the House, take the Senate, and take the White House, they still have to get their laws through the Supreme Court. And if you have a Supreme Court that is dominated by guys that actually care about the Constitution, understand what it means, and are prepared to actually live up to their responsibilities and apply the Constitution and enforce it against the government, uh, then the, the Democrats are worried. I mean, I think personally of the three branches of government, the branch that has failed the American public the most is the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court could have stopped all this nonsense, all these unconstitutional programs could have been struck down. And, you know, these guys are appointed for life. So they shouldn't worry about the consequences of being unpopular. You know, there's a lot of Republicans I know that vote for these popular programs that they probably know are unconstitutional and they know that they're bad, but they're afraid politically to come out against them because they don't want to be uh, the party pooper. They don't want to be the stingy Republican who's denying all this great free stuff. And it would be nice if they could count on the Supreme Court to have their back, because that way they can kind of vote for this stuff, knowing it's unconstitutional, where the Supreme Court will take the heat for them because they can strike it down. And then they can say, look, I tried, I voted for it, but you know, it's unconstitutional. And so we can't have it. And the Supreme Court justices don't have to worry. They're not up for re-election. That's one of the reasons that they have lifetime appointments. So once they're on the bench, they are no longer influenced by politics. They're no longer influenced by what's popular. But, you know, this happened. A lot of this unconstitutional stuff of the New Deal, you know, came into being because the... Um, the Supreme Court was shown to be unpopular. In fact, it was actually shown to be very unpopular when they struck down uh, the income tax because they said, oh yeah, you're in the pockets of the rich. Of course, now the income tax is picking the pockets of the poor and the middle class. But during the 1930s, much of the Roosevelt New Deal was getting struck down by the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court was taking the heat. There was a lot of criticism of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court was doing its job and then what happened was Roosevelt threatened to pack the court. Back then, he was going to appoint ringers, people to sit on the Supreme Court, who would basically ignore the Constitution and outvote the people that were trying to apply the Constitution. And it was that political pressure that ultimately led the Supreme Court justices, I think, to look the other way and to allow some of this unconstitutional stuff in any way just to preserve the court. Because obviously, if Roosevelt actually packed it, it would have, you know, looked even more ridiculous questioning the legitimacy of the court. So the court basically did it to themselves, which I think should have thrown its legitimacy into question anyway, because they were coerced by the president into basically, you know, closing their eyes and looking the other way and ratifying uh, laws that were clearly unconstitutional. But they did it anyway, because I guess they felt, well, if we don't do it, then we're going to get these ringers that are going to come in here and it's going to really call into uh, jeopardy uh, the integrity of the institution. So they, they, they picked between the lesser of the two evils and they chose to cooperate and at least pretend that this stuff was constitutional when it wasn't. Actually, it wasn't the entire court. It only took one justice to switch his vote because there were 
a few justices who were in the minority, who were not voting with the majority to strike down these New Deal programs. And so it took one justice to switch his vote and now not to vote with the justices who were rightly striking down these uh, New Deal laws and decide with the justices who were allowing them. Again, it was a depression. The public wanted these programs and the Supreme Court felt bad in actually doing its job and denying the public what it wanted. But, you know, there were some justices that were looking the other way. And then you had this one justice who switched and they you know, referred to that switch as being the switch in time that saved nine. Because if he didn't switch in time, Roosevelt was going to pack the Supreme Court to 15 justices. But that really set the precedent, right, for a lot of the stuff that's going on now, where you have this whole socialist agenda of big government somehow being constitutional, even though there's absolutely nothing in the Constitution that authorizes any of it. You know, another irrelevant consideration for the qualifications to be a Supreme Court justice is gender. And of course, gender is now a big deal because Ruth Bader Ginsburg is female. And right now of the eight remaining Supreme Court justices, two of those eight are women. And so Trump is promising to appoint another woman as if somehow this seat belongs to a woman because a woman occupies it now, which of course makes no sense because if a male happened to die or retire, does that mean that we have to you know, appoint another man to replace that person? No, gender doesn't matter at all. Now, of course, obviously there is a minority of women. If Even if we appoint another woman, there will just be three out of the nine justices will be women. So they will be in the minority. And there is a view out there that women need to be on the court to reflect a, a woman's perspective, a woman's point of view, a woman's experience. And the same argument is made for why we need uh, other minorities on the Supreme Court, right? We have to have African-American on the Supreme Court because that person will bring the African-American perspective to the job. But of course, all that is nonsense. The law is the law. If the Supreme Court justices were doing their job and just applying the Constitution to the government and forcing the government to live within the bounds of the Constitution, then their personal experiences would be irrelevant. Their preferences would be irrelevant. Doesn't matter what gender they are. Doesn't matter what ethnicity they are, what religion they are. All they're there to do is enforce the law regardless of their personal beliefs or how their beliefs may have been molded by the way they were raised, uh, by their culture or their religious beliefs or anything else. The law is the law regardless of any of that stuff. But the fact that all this stuff is so important, it's because none of these guys are actually doing their job. Everybody is trying to get somebody on the court that reflects their political ideology so they will support any legislation that conforms or advances that ideology. And that's what's wrong with the way the Supreme Court is currently operating. And that's why it no longer functions as the check against uh, congressional and presidential power. It's supposed to be our safeguard, our firewall against uh, government usurpation of power. Because even if the Congress passes legislation that is unconstitutional and the president signs it, 
five people on the Supreme Court can say that's unconstitutional and you can't do it. But if we're putting political lackeys on the court who are there to rubber stamp political agendas, not enforce the Constitution, then we've lost that branch of government. In fact, it may as well not even exist and we no longer have that check against government power and therefore we no longer have the protection that the framers intended the Supreme Court to provide us with. Anyway, I want to circle back to the markets because I talked about the stock markets, but I didn't talk about any of the other markets. So pretty much everything got whacked. All the foreign currencies were down today. The dollar was strong. Initially, the yen was the only currency that was positive. I think by the end of the day, it went slightly negative. Remember, the yen is uh, a safe haven currency. And a lot of people buy the yen uh, when everything is going down. And so the yen was strong uh, earlier in the day and was strong against all the other currencies. The strength in the dollar relative to other fiat currencies also helped push down gold. At one point, gold prices were down better than $60. We were down below 1900 intraday. You know, gold started out uh, strong last night. The dollar started out weak. So it all reversed when we got this big sell-off in the equity markets. Gold ended up settling, though, back above uh, 1900 I think it's about 1912 uh, as I'm recording this podcast. Though silver really took it on the shin today. I mean, at one point, silver was down better than 10% on the day. I think it ended up closing off about 8%, down over $2. So a lot of volatility in silver. But don't worry if you're in the silver market. Uh, this is just a buying opportunity for you. You know, unlike the stock market charts, which I say are looking pretty weak, uh, the silver chart is looking very, very strong. And this pullback is actually a welcome correction in this silver bull market. Uh, we're almost down to the, the trend line for the uptrend. I mean, we actually could go down another dollar or two to get to that trend line. Uh, but I think silver is a great buy on this pullback. You know, again, the idea that we're not going to get new stimulus, which is weighing on stocks, is also weighing on gold and silver, right? Because it's the stimulus that is driving the gold and silver market. But I think these are very different animals here. The stock market is a bubble and needs massive amounts of stimulus in order to sustain itself. Gold and silver are not in bubbles. In fact, gold and silver are undervalued. And Gold and silver should already be higher based on all the stimulus that has already taken place in the past. Forget about the stimulus that's going to take place in the future. And the Fed is not threatening to take away any of that future stimulus. The market is just worried that they're just not going to up the dosage of the stimulus. But the doses that we already have is more than enough to justify metal prices, gold and silver prices that are significantly higher than they are right now. So while both the stock market and the metal market are being fueled by monetary policy, the stock market is already way ahead of that policy and the gold and silver market is way behind. So we need a big move up in gold and silver to catch up uh, to where the stock market already is. So this is just a bunch of noise uh, for gold and silver. These are opportunities to buy, to add to your positions. And this is where some of the weaker players who just kind of you know, get into the market, are flushed out of the market. It's all healthy. It's all part of this bull market that is, I think, early in its life cycle and will continue for a long time. So take advantage of what's going on in, in gold and silver. 
in the physical market, you can go to Shift Gold to buy some uh, for delivery. I mentioned again the Perth Mint program for those of you who are working with Euro Pacific uh, Capital. It's also great for your for your uh, IRAs if you want to have physical coins there. Remember, we've got uh, no storage fees at all on silver, which is rare to be able to store silver free of charge. That's something you can do at the the Perth Mint program. So again, you go to goldyoucanfold.com, which takes you to the page on the Euro Pacific website that deals with the Perth Mint. But again, the best bang for your buck is going to be in the mining stocks. I mean, those stocks got hit today. I mean, not exceptionally hard, although the smaller stocks uh, were hit harder. The GDXJ was down about 5%, a little over 5%, 5.2%. GDX only 3.7%. I mean, bigger moves than the overall stock market. But considering how much gold and silver were down, not that out of the ordinary. We have plenty of big drops. Again, no damage whatsoever to the technical picture uh, of these uh, charts. Uh, the gold stocks look very, very strong technically. They're very strong fundamentally. So that's where I think if you really are willing to tolerate the additional risk, the upside is more than worth it. I think the best way uh, to play that is through my own fund, the Euro Pacific Gold Fund, uh, which you can get pretty much anywhere. Uh, you can also get it with Euro Pacific Capital. And if you want, we have separately managed accounts. Adrian Day manages both the uh, individual, the funds, and the separately managed accounts. So you can have an account with Euro Pacific or Euro Pacific Asset Management, depending on where in the world you're living. And we will manage a personalized portfolio for you of gold stocks. I don't know how long this correction is going to last, how much deeper it's going to go. But before it ends, this would be a great time for you to get your accounts going or a window for you to add to accounts that already exist. Interesting thing, though, about the bond market is while the bond market, again, was up, right? We did get a flight to so-called quality or safe havens in the bond market, right? It was the only kind of safe haven other than the yen uh, that really rallied. It was barely up. I mean, this was not a big up day in the bond market. Bond prices were barely up. Given how big the stock market was down, especially in the morning, the fact that we didn't get a bigger rush into the bond market, again, confirms with me that we're treading in some dangerous territory in the bond market. The bond market looks weak. I think long-term interest rates are headed higher, and that is going to be very problematic for both the U.S. economy and the stock market. But, you know, I want to finish up the podcast uh, by reaching out to people who are in the business of uh, the brokerage business, financial services, licensed uh, people who have been doing this for a while, because I really need to hire more people to work for me at Euro Pacific Asset Management in Puerto Rico. Now, in order to do this, you don't have to move to Puerto Rico. I mean, you can. And in fact, if you want to personally benefit from the tax incentives, then yeah, you definitely should move there. And I think it's a great place to live. I love living there. And the people that have already moved there, uh, we all enjoy living in Puerto Rico. So it's not just about the tax breaks, but the tax break certainly adds substantially to the appeal of being in Puerto Rico. But we need to hire more people, especially now that we are registered in Canada. We have a lot of new Canadian uh, accounts. We have a huge list of people who have expressed interest over the years that live in Canada. So I need a lot of people uh, to work with these Canadian prospects, customers, but we're also getting a lot of other accounts. So I, I need to hire several more people 
to help us with uh, the, the inflow of new customers and new inquiries that we're getting at Europe Pacific Asset Management. So you can submit the resumes to, uh, to Shift Radio if you're interested in doing this. And again, you have two opportunities to do this. You can move to Puerto Rico. And again, you don't have to move to Puerto Rico right away, but if you move to Puerto Rico, that's great. But given the fact that even my guys in Puerto Rico now tend to be working from home, I guess if you're going to work from home, it doesn't really matter where your home is. So if you don't want to move, uh, you can stay right where you are. As long as you have an internet connection and and a phone, you can work from your home in any of the 50 states. You don't have to be in, in Puerto Rico to join the team. In fact, you know, for a long time to work at Europe Pacific Capital, we only had maybe a half a dozen offices. And I had a lot of people that wanted to work for me. And it was always like, well, I don't have an office in your area. And most people uh, were reluctant to move. But I think now the brokerage industry is moving in the direction and maybe the compliance and the regulation will move with us uh, to allow and make it easier for more reps to work from home. Uh, opening up uh, opportunities for people to work with me who don't necessarily live, uh, you know, close to one of the uh, locations where we happen to have a branch office. But ideally, the candidate to work at Europe Pacific Asset Management is somebody who is very familiar with my philosophy, with my strategy, who believes in it, uh, and then who could do a good job of explaining it uh, to other prospects. Um, It's mostly a relationship management job. We're going to do all the portfolio management ourselves, and we can also customize portfolios. So it's not like we can only service clients who want to invest outside the United States. We're perfectly capable of managing domestic portfolios to the extent that you have a client base now that wants to invest in the U.S., that wants to buy U.S. stocks and bonds. We can manage those portfolios for them. Certainly, uh, we would encourage them to integrate our strategy into those uh, portfolio so that they have some exposure outside the U.S. dollar, so that they have exposure to precious metals, but they don't have to. But as far as the the clients that would be introduced to you through an association with me, these clients specifically want that exposure. That's why they're in my database. That's why they're contacting me, reaching out to me. And that's why I need additional personnel to help follow up on those acquiries open up uh, these accounts and help maintain these customer relationships with a high degree of personal service. Anyway, that's it for today. I could end up doing quite a few more podcasts this week if we end up getting the type of volatility that it looks like we may have.